This is a message from the Art Intelligence Agency. Welcome to AI Agents, a program that explores the intersections of innovation and artificial intelligence. This podcast is brought to you by a collaboration between the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and the C.F. Fowler Institute at the University of Adelaide. Join our host, Tim Whiffen, in conversation with creatives, academics, and professionals in exploring how human and artificial intelligence can collaborate in divergent ideas for our future. With the surge of AI being used in art and other creative ventures, common intuitions suggest that human creativity is special and unable to be replicated by machines. But increasingly, we are surprised by what machines can learn and do. If humans are special, what makes their thoughts different from machine thoughts? With questions so fundamental to the quest for artistic machines, I had to call in the experts. Dr. Jonathan Opie and Mr. Benjamin Lancer from the University of Adelaide grace us with their wisdom in this philosophical episode of AI Agents. Benjamin Lancer is a doctoral candidate at the Adelaide Medical School investigating the selective attention in insect target detection neurons and has a very sophisticated understanding of the physiological attributes of neural networks. John Opie is an accomplished philosopher with several Australian Research Council projects surrounding cognitive science and consciousness. Artificial intelligence is his theoretical bread and butter. I have brought these two AI agents together to discuss the comparisons one can draw between organic and artificial creativity, how it is being used now, and what it could look like in the future. I'm here with John Opie and Benjamin Lancer. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Howdy. Well, it's a pleasure to have you both here. Uh, I guess I would like to start, we'll start with Ben. Um, Could you give our audience a, a brief explanation of your research interests? Yep. So I am in the Visual Physiology and Neurobotics Laboratory over in Adelaide Medical School. And my sort of broader research interests, I think, are the intersection between biology, behavior, cognition, and intelligence. So I'm really interested in understanding how you get these behavioral outcomes via cognitive processes, and then how this is implemented in biology. So if you can think of something like a neuron firing, that's just ion channels opening and ions going in and out. How does that result in the speech I'm doing now, the auditory sensation you're listening to now, and then the internal understanding? Um, So that's my broader research interests, but I'm a PhD candidate at the moment and uh, stepping back down to the scope of my project, I work with dragonflies in the dragonfly visual system, studying how they select and track targets for predatory pursuit. That sounds incredibly relevant in the sense that your uh, study of neurons is literally in some ways converting ones and zeros into actual behavior in some sense. Yep, that is exactly the hope. (laughs) Well, John. Um... Uh, well, I'm a philosopher. I'm not a. I'm not a scientist, although I do have some science background. But generally speaking, I'm interested in questions about the mind. More particularly, I'm interested in understanding how conscious intelligence is produced. And I guess you know that starts with the human case. But I'm also very interested in how that relates uh, to to work the sort of work that Ben is doing, because I think that mind is a widespread natural phenomena. It's not just humans that have minds. I take a broadly naturalistic perspective, which means that I come at these questions trying to to draw from the sciences and to have a, a kind of scientific take on what's going on. Yeah. 
Which again, uh, really feeds into that AI thing because I guess it's in some ways being implemented or is a scientific process itself really. So mm -hmm. AI is often critiqued as, as being very basic in its intelligence functions you know, where it's unable to think of anything other than its uh, data, the data that it's being fed. Mm. This brings up an interesting question for the human mind or indeed any kind of organic mind, I suppose. Can those minds, can we come up with distinctly new thoughts, do you think? Yeah, look, I think I think we can. And I think, uh, but it's, it's a partly a matter of perspective. So what counts as new is a little bit dependent on context. So for example, a two-year-old child might come up with an idea that's new to them. You know, children famously engage in creative activity, especially they're often very creative with language. You know, uh, I remember my son once came up with a nice one. He saw a fountain and he's watched the water falling and he said, oh, there's a water mountain. Now that's an example of something that I've never heard anybody say before or since. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not world shaking creativity, but it's creative. But of course, that's not always what we're talking about when we talk about creativity. We're talking about relative to a group or a community or even the whole species. And so I think, yeah, there have been some creative episodes that are at that level of, you know, no one else has done this or, or at least no one else has taken it this far before. So famously, you know, lots of ideas come up more than once. I was thinking of the example of a steam engine, which is a great innovation, you know, was in, made a huge difference to the modern world because, you know, you've got this power on tap, right, that you get without having to use animals and human muscle, you know. But of course, there were precursor designs that the ancient Greeks came up with. Wow. So, so, you know, one message you might take from that, or oh, there's nothing new under the sun. I don't think that's quite right. I think they didn't take it where it needed to go. And there was a lot of innovation, a lot of creativity in, in going from that very basic idea that you can see in some of the drawings in the Greek literature that are clearly going in the right direction. And now we have a modern steam engine. Well, I guess they're not that modern now, but we still have them. Yeah. Yeah. And that involved a huge amount of innovation and creativity. Mm. And, and yourself, Ben, I guess it's interesting case, I guess, for insects, I'd imagine. Or do, you, do you see much kind of synthesis of thought? Well, we see a lot of synthesis of thought um, throughout the animal kingdom. Um, John spoke a little bit about uh, humans. And as he was saying that, I, I was thinking of a couple of examples um, still from primates, but one of the ones I wanted to bring up is there are the Japanese snow macaques, and I forget the name of the particular macaque. I, I wish I remembered it. But one particular macaque one day was going and um, they eat these root vegetables that they sort of dig up. And this one found that if she dipped it in the salt water every bite and then took a bite out of it, it tasted better because, of course, salt is a taste enhancer. And uh, this is something that the macaques hadn't been doing before. Uh, one of them figured it out either spontaneously, maybe she dropped it in there, I'm not sure, but continued doing that. And then that spread throughout that little troop culturally. And then a couple of generations later, another macaque found that, well, you don't actually have to take it over to the beach to dip it in. You can collect some of the salt and then bring it in and then rub it on and it has the same effect. So uh, similar to what John was saying with the steam engine, I think most ideas are building on top of other ideas, but there are certainly these um, breakthroughs that we go through.
It's it's interesting. I think it's a good way to describe it as building. I mean, both of those examples, right? So, you know, water and mountain, you know, they're both kind of individual data sets maybe that they've put together kind of miraculously or or salt and fruit or yeah, whatever it may be. So, it's a fascinating area in the sense that you're taking inputs that seemingly have nothing to do with each other but were previous thoughts or were previous kind of data sets. So, would you say in that sense that uh, humans or I guess organic minds are limited by their data inputs? Like, can we come up with a color, let's say, that's never been seen before? Or, you know, that seems kind of wild. So, Actually, that's an interesting case to mention because there has been some research done suggesting that it is possible to perceive so-called impossible colors. So the current, you know, understanding of how color works suggests that Colour depends on some oppositions between, broadly speaking, between reds and greens and blues and yellows, all, all the corresponding uh, parts of the spectrum, the frequencies of light. But it turns out you can experience a reddish green and a bluish yellow, even though that's supposed to be impossible, under the right experimental conditions. Now, the creativity there is someone figuring out how to create that experience in a human being and, and learning that what we thought about ourselves was was wrong. Now, of course, your question isn't so much about that. It's about, you know, can we do new things? And I think that was a, a nice example of someone thinking, well, I wonder if that red-green, that supposed impossibility of experiencing a reddish-green or a bluish-yellow, I wonder if that's really deeply built into us or whether it's to do with the channels of information. And so they found a way of getting around the normal system and, and discovered that indeed people can experience reddish-greens. So there was something creative there the, the, the biggest business about data sets, yeah, of course, we're limited by the, the data that's available, but there's a lot available. Yeah, I guess it's the modes through which we're accessing that data. So a, a computer is limited by, or it has, has limitations in its inputs. So you, know, you can only put pictures in or you can only feed you know, certain sets of data, but we're experiencing things in so many mo- modes uh, at, at once. Is, is there a, a way to kind of measure that? So that at one day, perhaps we can make AI that has kind of several modes. Ben, do, do, do you have any opinions on that? Um, I definitely think we can make AI that has, you know, several sensory modalities. The thing is, with most current artificial neural networks, they're really based on uh, the architecture of the visual cortex. And so you can imagine or the visual cortex is a, it's just one part of the brain. It doesn't necessarily represent the whole brain. The architecture in different parts of the brain uh, might be quite different. And one of the reasons we use that is because in AI, traditionally, a lot of it has been to do with computer vision. So modeling after the visual system seems like a good way to go. But taking different maybe AI modules and then having them all do their own thing and then connecting them together in parallel and hierarchical processes and maybe taking inspiration from different parts of the brain for different kinds of task demands, mm-hmm. I reckon is definitely um, an exciting avenue of research that I would be really interested to see more done in. In your work, have you found that there are, I guess, similarities among different species in their intelligence? Are we all kind of constructed in a similar kind of way? Yeah, yeah. I think Darwin had it right way back when he said that the difference between animal intelligence and human intelligence is one of degree and not of kind. Mm. So I I think it's probably a a non-starter to say that uh, all animals or all species are equally as intelligent as as humans. 
or equally as intelligent as each other um, because there are a lot of other constraints, uh, for example, brain size. So the dragonflies that I work in have about 1 million neurons. And if you compare that to our brains at 86 billion, it would be a little bit unfair to try and expect the exact same things to go on. But even dragonflies themselves can be quite intelligent. And another really interesting restriction is, well, what are the actual ecological demands on the animal. If you think of something like a slime mold, they can do very intelligent things. They can solve something like the traveling salesman problem um, far, far better than any computer algorithms we have and um, even better than we can do it um, because that is, that's an important thing to their ecology and ethology. Um, but a slime mold would probably have difficulty uh, doing some computer programming in C++, for example, because <laughs> obviously there's no reason for them to have developed or, or learnt that. And of course, I've just used an absurd example, but I, I think it's important to keep in mind um, ecology and ethology when looking at animal intelligence. That's fascinating. Uh, you, you guys seem to have a bit of a, a passion in the area, so I'm glad that I'm speaking to you. To your knowledge, is there any kind of good models or do artificial intelligence or machine learning models in any way replicate human intelligence? Like, Is that what they're more or less based on? Would that be a good way to describe it? I think it, it's it's important to, to realize that AI has a history mm. <laughs> and that... And in the early days, the interest was very much in reproducing conscious reasoning and conscious intelligence, the kinds of things that I'm not saying that every aspect of, of what we do when we reason consciously is conscious, mm. but nonetheless, people initially were interested in, you know, how do you play a game of chess? How do you do mental arithmetic? Um, how do you solve a, a problem, you know, like the traveling salesman problem or something that takes a bit of thinking and a bit of time to kind of first absorb the details and then figure out a solution. So people developed an understanding of things like means, ends analysis and so on. And they realized that that, and they discovered this by talking to people, to human beings who were solving problems and said, well, we can program some of that in to our machines. And, and so they did. This era of AI, which has kind of got started in the late fifties and into the sixties, sometimes known as GoFi, good old fashioned AI. It was very much this chasing these kind of conscious rule following or rule-like intelligence that you see in things like chess, bearing in mind that, of course, being good at chess isn't about conscious rules. But um, from there, um, people develop this kind of symbolic machine learning approach. Now, what's happened more recently is that the way that these machines are constructed, and I use the term constructed kind of loosely because, of course, they're programmed they're simulated, mm. um, involves, as Ben was saying just a minute ago, taking inspiration from the neural networks of the brain. And so the, the, the current wave, a very exciting wave of new AI and new machine learning involves a very different kind of device or, or a different kind of software because the software is actually modeling something at low level, namely the structure of the brain, the activity of the brain, only modeling it in a kind of idealized way. Mm. But that gives these modern systems the capacity to do some of the things that initially were thought to be the easy problem, like how do you see, how do you hear? In the old days, they thought, oh, that's the easy stuff. The hard stuff is our conscious reasoning, our, you know, our word-governed intelligence. But 
eventually they realize actually the hard stuff is vision. This hard stuff is hearing. So what's exciting about what's happening now is that by taking inspiration from the structure of the brain and simulating those structures in software, or in some cases actually building devices that in some sense emulate those physical processes, you get a device that's capable of surprisingly sophisticated perception-like pattern recognition activities that, that we, that, you know, that that are actually really sophisticated. It's a fascinating area, I guess, in, in some sense, kind of relies on some similarities between the way that our, our neurons work and, and, and ones and zeros. Is that an observation that people make or is there any kind of distinct, like a comparison to be drawn there, would you, would you say? Can I, can I come in? I'm sure Ben's got yeah. some stuff yeah. to say about that. Sure. Just the, the first comment to make is when, when people were first looking at the brain and trying to understand the, the brain and how it works, they, they discovered that a lot of neurons, not all neurons, but a lot of neurons have a, have a property of firing. That is, they, they create a pulse of, of uh, electricity that runs through the system, but they only do it a pulse at a time. And it appeared that what was going on, what goes on in the brain, we now know it's more complicated than this, but it seemed as though what was going on was a kind of series of discrete pulses that were then spreading out and combining in complicated patterns. So people very early on, this guy's called McCulloch and Pitts, um, said, well, maybe these are zeros and ones in effect. There are, they are kind of symbol, symbols, the, or at least the basis of symbols. So that kind of connection was seen early on. Nowadays, people are not so convinced that that's the right way to think about it. I mean, the big question is, does the brain uh, represent the world using symbols or is it something else? Is it more like an image, more like an iconic form of representation. That's one of the things I'm very interested in in my work. Mm. I should give Ben a chance, I guess. Yeah, I, I think what John said is exactly right. Throughout uh, most of the history of neuroscience, we've thought of the, these pulses, which we call spikes uh, in the neuroscience literature, um, as either these all or nothing events. They either happen or they don't happen. So a neuron is receiving its information from all the presynaptic cells. And um, when it gets to a certain threshold, it, it sends a spike. And that spike travels down the neuron through the network to the next, next point in the network. And even with a lot of modern neuroscience, even though theoretically people are kind of aware that, hey, this isn't the full story, there's, there's got to be a lot more to this, people are still using spikes as the main, main part of neuroscience research, at least especially in electrophysiology. But there are all these other properties that are important. So there's this question of spike timing, what is the sort of time in milliseconds between spikes, um, whether you have burst firing or um, tonic firing. So for example, over the same period, maybe 10 milliseconds, I could um, fire four spikes across that 10 millisecond evenly spaced or right in the middle, four spikes really, really fast. And that would actually be a different signal. So that is down at the you know single neuron level in terms of how does an individual neuron represent information spikes are important but what actual properties of spikes but then if you go one step up to the network i think we get into questions of well, how are different neurons connected what are their relationships with each other and i think it's ultimately the topology of a network is far more important for information processing and information representation than any of the kind of finicky biological details, exactly which neurotransmitter, exactly which ion, exactly what its charge is, uh, things like that. So that's really interesting because it, in, in some ways, 
is is damning for how we construct AI in the sense that if it's all ones and zeros and we're looking at it at the kind of singular neuron level, if if we want to make that comparison, we almost can't hope to make the network, at least with the computing available to, to us and, and at least the forms or the tools that we use to construct that, um, it would just take forever, I guess, to, and this is why you've, you, bo- you both have mentioned that the, the current artificial intelligence is really just a very low resolution model of, of a, an organic brain. It's- yeah, I think there is another important avenue. So if, if you think in terms of spikes, usually what we um, boil that down to is this idea of spikes per second. Um, mm. And even though, as I gave the example before, the four spikes over a 10 millisecond could be distributed in different ways, but usually the way we're thinking of it is spikes per second. And in the sort of artificial neural networks that use a kind of idea of rate encoding can present sort of near continuous you know, distributions of spikes per second in the activation of units. But what I think ends up being equally, if not more important, is this idea that what a computer is essentially doing is working in these discrete time steps. So it's not so much the activation that I'm worried about, it's it's the timing of it. Whereas in the brain, we have um, in us 86 um, billion neurons <laughs> all firing at different times in different ways and um, it, you know it's a physical system in, embedded in physical space if you have a neuron in your occipital cortex at the back of your head and it wants to send a signal to your frontal cortex at the front of your head there's an actual distance and it takes actual time and that's going to be longer than two neurons that are closer together so this idea of the discrete time implementation in artificial neural networks and continuous time implementations where delays can be manipulated by the brain um, and by neurons in different ways and uh, inherent in that it's physical space. That's where I really think, to use a sort of AI term, that artificial neural network research is getting stuck in a sort of local minima. And, mm. and in order to really, if, they want to, if you want to make the way all the way to sort of human-like level strong AI, I think that's going to be an important thing to get resolved. It has to be on a more macro kind of scale, right? Is that, mm. Yeah. Uh, with those kinds of observations that we've just made, would you guys have any kinds of reservations uh, about calling artificial intelligence creative? If we know that they're limited by their data sets, if they're kind of looking at things with a, a low resolution binary approach, even even though it might not be binary, uh, is it is it really even kind of possible for them to a- attempt new thoughts in the same way that, that we do? I have been teaching uh, cognitive science to philosophy students for many years, teaching them you know, some of the philosophical or foundational issues around this. And often in class, you get people commenting about, about computer programs and they say, oh, computer programs can't really be creative. They can only do what the software designer put into them. And the problem with that comment is in one sense it's true, but in, in a kind of an interesting way. Yeah, sure, the, the software can't do anything unless we make the machine or and then put the software in it, write the code. But can a machine do things that were not explicitly coded for it to do? Absolutely. They do that all the time. And of course, the current uh, wave of AI using deep neural networks is surprising us every day in terms of what it can do. It's what's surprising is how much, how far you can go by just having access to huge data sets and then extracting patterns from those data sets so, so um, whether it's an old-fashioned kind of GoFi machine learning style program or one of these modern ones that takes 
it's a simulation of a part of the brain that takes its inspiration from some things we know, particularly, as you say, uh, Ben was saying about the topology and the structure and organization of the different parts of the brain. Those um, systems can definitely surprise us. If that's what you mean by creativity, some kind of novelty, something new that we haven't seen. I mean, the question is whose standard mm. are we using for novel, which I raised at the beginning. Mm. Would you have any kind of reservations about calling an AI an attempt at organic intelligence creative? So the the quick answer to that is is no. Okay. Um, but I have some reservations to that answer. I see. Um, if, if that makes sense, mm. um, because it really depends on exactly what you mean by AI. So a mm. lot of the networks that we have currently um, are very sort of detailed down to a specific task. So if you can imagine if you're designing an artificial neural network, say that's going to go on a camera in front of a car to detect pedestrians, there's a certain sense where you really don't want that network to be creative. You don't mm. want it to suddenly decide uh, that something else is a pedestrian or that what is a pedestrian isn't. You don't want a creative approach to that. So a lot of these systems that are engineered for a particular goal sort of the point isn't creativity. Mm. And in a sense, they have creativity sort of um, excluded from them, top down by the programmer as much as is possible. But as John was saying, there's this fantastic literature of shortcut learning in um, AI. And shortcut learning is, is really ill-defined, but it basically means when a network is learning something that wasn't intended by the programmer or the person making the network. And a really salient example that sticks out to me is there were some researchers that were trying to create a network to look at radiographic scans for particular cancers. And it was reporting back whether an, a particular image had a cancer in it with mm -hmm. incredibly high accuracy rates, much wow. higher than uh, doctors. Wow. Um, until they found out that all the images actually had uh, a little metal chip at the top that had the hospital ID, what hospital it came from. And the AI had actually learned that different hospitals had different rates of cancer. And then it just found what the hospital was from the image and then basically reported the rate of uh, cancer in the hospital. So that's really creative in, in a certain sense. Um, and yeah, so we call that shortcut learning. And that's not just a property of AI systems. That is something that biological systems do, uh, that humans do. I'm sure we all remember when we were in high school or have seen our kids sort of learning to the test rather than actually learning uh, the underlying concepts we're meant to be. I'm sure maybe John's familiar <laughs> with this from mm -hmm. his students. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is something biological systems do. And you can think of, well, that's really what that AI system was doing. That's, yeah, it's a really good case. Patent finding is usually the way that I like to explain it, I guess. Yeah, mm. yeah. So with that, I guess we've kind of come to a conclusion that there are definitely some limitations that prevent AI from emulating human creativity in some way, but it's not as if they're not capable of, of uh, surprising us or, or doing anything that isn't expected. Um, I want to bring up an example. I interviewed someone recently called Sam Leach, who's a Melbourne-based artist who uses AI to ingest a bunch of classical and modern art into basically a system, and then it spits out a really low-resolution image, and he finds kinds of um, ideas of aesthetics across time, right? And then he then, in some ways, sculpts. He, he paints, but he kind of sculpts a, a higher resolution of the, the image that the AI, AI spits out. So... Uh, he is, I guess, a technician or, or 
he clarifies what the AI is sort of resembling or, or thinking. And, and, and that would be, uh, I guess, a process that we call augmentation uh, or, or intelligence augmentation. Um, it seems a bit strange to call something um, intelligent, like if we're in that case, you know, it's AI, it's, but it, it seems strange to be calling it intelligence if it's augmenting other kinds of intelligence. Is there, is there a tension there in, in kind of using aug- intelligence augmentation or is that a strange use of language, would we say? Sorry, it's a, that was an unclear question. <laughs> That's okay. I actually think the question is a good one in, in terms of we use terms and, and then we start one thinking that they mean something and, and we, we have to then explain what they mean. So we say artificial intelligence and then we think, well, if we're using the word intelligence, then it must be some kind of intelligence. And and, mm. and in some cases, um, it is an okay simulation of aspects of intelligence. Mm. But we can also use so-called AIs just as mere tools as data processing devices that can process data in ways that we didn't have access to before. I mean, an artist can look at, like Sam, could look at art through the ages and then synthesize kind of blended images of the kind that he produces without the use of an AI. But what he's using that program for is to stimulate his process to come up with some initial materials for him that he can then work on. So there's genuine creativity in what he's doing there's novelty in what the AI is producing, but I'm not sure that I would say the AI is being creative. I think I would say that Sam Leach is being creative. He's got a new tool, yeah. an augmentation, I agree. It's an augmentation of his intelligence in the sense that it's a, a tool that he can use to produce interesting new outcomes. But, you know, we've, you know, artists have been developing new tools for, for ages, right? So what's the difference between painting with a brush and painting with a palette knife, well, they're quite different. Mm. And you only learn by experience what you can do with them. And so in a sense, the tool directs you in a certain part of the creative space because of its physical structure. Equally, the AIs that Sam is using, and I applaud him for, for doing this, are stimulating him to go in directions that he may not have otherwise gone. Mm. So he's being creative. Um, it's a creative use of a tool. The, the so-called AI, in this case, I think is more like a complicated data processor, a kind of a, you know, I mean, I don't want to downplay how clever in one sense, and I use that word advisedly, but how impressive the modern AIs are, but they're not really intelligent, I would say. Mm, interesting. And, and Ben, do you have any any experience with kinds of augmenting uh existing intelligence well just just from the question of augmenting existing intelligence i think that's essentially what all intelligence is i mean even if we just restrict ourselves to humans uh for the time being um, we're evolved beings and as we have um evolved in in different processes in different directions um we have had sort of intelligence molded out of what existed before added on top and i don't think there's you could point to any any particular generation in human evolutionary history and say, all right, well, this this child is intelligent, but all the parents and ancestors, none of them were. I, I don't think it, it works like that. Um, at every stage of evolutionary history, our brain has been augmented, um, maybe using the same brain area that evolved for one thing in a slightly different process. Um, a really good example of that is a part of our brain called the insular cortex, and it's uh, just a couple of centimeters uh, behind the ear. 
And this is an evolutionarily very old structure and um, it evolved to give us feelings of disgust. So when I drink some rotten milk, um, my insular cortex lights up, it activates the, um, the vomit reflex in the medulla and that's, that's why the insular cortex evolved. But now if you go and you read something that you think is morally disgusting and you feel a little bit sick, that's because the insular cortex has been sort of co-opted by these higher order processes and it's responding in the same way. Now, the neurons themselves don't know the difference between sort of physiology and psychology. They don't know if you've just drunk rotten milk or if you've seen something you think of as morally disgusting. They're going to activate and they're going to activate the queasy stomach feeling. And yeah, that's just one example, but that's really um, a narrative of how the brain and intelligence has evolved, where any intelligent process that we currently have is an augmentation of processes that we already had, which themselves are really augmentations of processes all the way down, really. <laughs> I, I want to finish up just by coming back to John for a second with the, uh, I guess, intelligence language. I mean, it seems then by no accident that... Uh, um, our institute here, the Australian Australian Institute for Machine Learning, is calling it machine learning instead of artificial intelligence. Do you think that uh, it will? It is possible. I mean, I understand that this isn't, I guess, your practical area in some sense that you're not developing these AIs, but you seem to have a. Well, you obviously have a very good understanding of what they have been doing for the past half, well, past century even. So do, do you think that we can come to a point where we be, would be able to call it intelligent if we can't say that now? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I, I don't rule out the possibility that in the future we'll have uh, synthetic or artificial systems that maybe even uh, approach or exceed our own intelligence. Where, where I'm now using the word intelligence in the, in the human-centric sense of... Yeah. Um, and, and I think I need to say a little bit about that because I think... Uh, uh, a good philosopher by the name of uh, Brian Cantwell Smith uh, recently has been writing about this and he draws a really interesting distinction between what he calls reckoning and judgment. And he says the current AIs, so-called, are very good at reckoning. They can, they can figure stuff out. They can find patterns that you and I can't find. And so, you know, clearly they're doing something sophisticated and potentially very important for, for, for applications in technology. And those applications are already happening. Mm. But judgment and reckoning aren't the same thing. So Cantwell Smith says, and this is kind of my paraphrase of him, but to have judgment, you kind of have to care about things. Yeah. And you have to have a reason for doing what you do. And it strikes me that at the moment we're a million miles away from having AIs that care about things or that have a reason for doing anything. We can artificially give them a reason. Mm. but they don't have any inherent reasons. And more importantly, I think from the perspective of understanding the human mind, it's they don't have any feeling or experience associated with what they do. So, of course, I've opened the black box now, the, the, the <laughs> question of consciousness. Mm. But, I, but I, I think that that's an important part of what, it, what we mean when we talk about intelligence, we're thinking about human conscious intelligence. Mm. And human conscious intelligence involves the world seeming some way to some agent. Yeah. We're, we're the agent. Yeah. And uh, and we have feelings about what's going on and we and we're driven to behave in certain ways. 
clearly we've evolved and there's an evolutionary story as to why we feel the way we do. But nonetheless, that's an, a genuine part of what it is to be a human agent is to have those feelings. I'm not saying that we could never produce a synthetic system that can do that, but we're nowhere near that at the moment, as far as I can see. Mm. So but perhaps this is too reductionistic, Ben. Maybe correct me if you think I'm wrong, but you could say that a mind is a gene's way of, of making more genes. So maybe really inherent in uh, humanity, inherent in animal life and intelligence is this idea, well, I'm going to try and propagate my genes, even though maybe we have arrived at a point where we've sort of become too smart for our genes. So maybe in order to make a, a truly intelligent AI system that is imbued with intentionality and um, decision-making, uh, what was the word you used, the opposite of reckoning? Judgment. Judgment. And maybe if we want to make an AI that's imbued with judgment, maybe it needs to have some sort of innate um, desire, need to propagate itself. Mm. Well, it's something along those lines. Um, just Sounds some dangerous. speculation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it does. But uh, to, to answer your question, I don't think inherently I have any a priori reason to think that artificial intelligence couldn't become as intelligent as humans or more. Yeah. Um, I'll echo John. I don't think we're there yet. I think we have a long way to go, but I am optimistic in that. Wow. Well, it's it's a it's good prospects. We've seen some interesting forms of creativity, but I, I guess you know that we may, might need a, a specific form of creativity to describe AI. So far, I think is what we found. I want to thank you both very much for joining me today, and uh, all the best for your future endeavors. And perhaps we can talk again. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you, John. Yep, love to talk again. Thanks. You can read more about the work that Benjamin and John are doing from the links in the episode description. We have barely scratched the surface of the mind-body problem, but we have established that there is a good physiological basis for our intuitions about machine creativity, and also a lot of potential for change as these technologies are further adopted, adapted, and accepted by creative minds. Thanks for listening to AI Agents. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcatcher and consider giving it a review. Do not forget that you can share this episode with other intelligent people and things, but for now, it is time to close the pod bay doors, Hal. <laughs>